I'm Collier Landry, subject of the investigation discovery documentary of Murder in Mansfield. On New Year's Eve 1989, I awoke in the middle of the night to the sound of two loud thuds. The next morning, my mother was missing, but I knew she was no longer alive. No one believed me except one detective. And 25 days later, police found my mother's body buried beneath the basement floor of my father's new home he purchased for his mistress. I had witnessed a murder. And at the age of 12, I testified against my father at his months-long murder trial. He is still incarcerated to this day. I'm Collier Landry. And I'm Brenda Fisher. And this is Moving Past Murder. Today's episode of Moving Past Murder, we have a very special guest, David Robinson Esquire. He is the author of You See a Hero, I See a Human Being, which chronicles his time at the Detroit Police Department as first a cadet, then, after getting his law degree, uh, began to represent the department in civil cases, being witness to the corruption at the Detroit Police Department, flipped on the other side as a civil litigator representing the public against police misconduct issues. I am pleased to welcome to the program, David Robinson Esquire. How are you, sir? Great, Tiger. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for joining us. We've checked out your book here, You See a Hero, I See a Human Being. Uh, What a great read, sir. And we were discussing a little bit in our sort of pre-interview about your experiences and kind of how we are sort of navigating these issues of police interactions with the public in the United States currently. And obviously you have a great deal of experience with this. And I think uh, if I'm not mistaken, having grown up in Ohio myself, Detroit has often been a very hotbed of uh, issues with police dealing with civilians and matters in criminal matters, civil matters, things of that nature. You have served both the public in the sense of serving the public as a police officer but also serving the public in matters of police misconduct in the court yes. side. Correct. So, David, what uh, what is your take on the current state of the policing situation in the United States? You know, um, certainly uh, the world um, had, uh, for the first time, the opportunity to see what goes on uh, inside the, let's say, the mind and the mentality of uh, a police officer. Um, And this is through the likes of, uh, you know, the unfortunate circumstances surrounding George Floyd's death and uh, and the actions of uh, Derek Chauvin. And it's so interesting that, um, you know, when I was a cop uh, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, there was no such thing as uh, video recordings and cell phones that would capture uh, this misconduct and these dirty deeds. Um, and so, you know, Rodney King. Uh, oh, Rodney first, King, yeah. First time that uh, the public had, uh, had an opportunity to see, you know, raw brutality uh, carried out by police officers. Now, um, and then... Uh, bringing us forward to uh, the uh, interaction that was captured on video with George Floyd and, and Derek Chauvin um, and the difference between uh, Rodney King in that video and what we saw captured by the young lady uh, civilian surveillance, I call it, um, catching uh, Derek Chauvin in his uh, cavalier uh, adopted position with his hand in his pocket, you know, pressing uh, his knee against the uh, the neck of uh, George Floyd for nine minutes and 29 seconds, separated only by, you know, the texture of a pair of pants, you know, and perhaps a, a shirt uh, worn by George Floyd and, and being uh, indifferent to the flesh, you know, that uh, was on the other side of sure. both of those pieces of fabric. So um, um, have things changed? Um, Certainly uh, to that extent, George Floyd's brutality and his death, uh, uh, things changed. Is it going to be a sustained situation? You know, unfortunately, I don't believe so. I think it's going to have fought back to the same position that it was before 
uh, these incidents are captured on video. Uh, mind you, um, since um, George Floyd's death, there have been other uh, engagements of police officers who have uh, uh, led to the deaths of uh, citizens that were not captured, you know, uh, sure. uh, on video. And we haven't heard about those things. So in your tenure as as an officer first, you became is this when you became privy to to mis misconduct in the police department or was it when you be, when you got your law degree and then began to represent the department that you really started to understand the undertone and and i i tend to feel that you know with the things like the black lives matter movement what happened in ferguson with michael brown or george floyd obviously uh trayvon going back as far as to trayvon martin we are seeing these things uh, take place against people of color, obviously. And I think that there's a, been a long history of that in the United States. But would you say that this is only specific to people of color? Because I, growing up, and I had, I had very positive dealings with the police department for the most part, uh, myself as a, as a young man, because of my mother's murder and working with them, and with Lieutenant David Messmore, who was the chief detective on my, on my mother's case, or my father's case, rather. <clears throat> um, so I have a positive, uh, when it comes to investigations, I have a very positive view of the police department. But I also still feared the police. I didn't like getting pulled over. And I understand I'm not a person of color, but I definitely was always concerned. Like, what if I do something wrong? Or what if they find something or whatever? You know, even though I'm an innocent civilian, right? Um, so do you think it's very specific? Or, or it's generally racially biased? I think it is um, racially motivated, um, but along with that, um, there is a social economic uh, sort of like structure I to police misbehavior. Um, uh, Birmingham, Michigan is a, a city that uh, on the map of America, you know, would be considered uh, um, definitely one percenters. Um, the police uh, in policing Birmingham don't uh, have people that would uh, present themselves as being powerless, um, present themselves as being um, persons of low socioeconomic status. Those are that those become the target then of police officers in their misbehavior, on the presumption uh, that uh, they can get away with it. <laughs> uh, and you know, if you look at every one of these uh, circumstances, you know, from Rodney King to George Floyd, you know, the common theme. Uh, among all of those African-Americans that have, have died at the hands of these police officers have been that uh, thread of low, lower social economic status. They live in, you know, the uh, poorer areas of, uh, of, of America, you know, and with brown people, the, the exact same thing. So you um, see a difference, you know, interestingly, in Northern Michigan, um, I get calls from uh, white people uh, who call me from Northern Michigan because they can't find a lawyer in their area to take on the police. But it's just interesting because the stories that they report uh, and the behavior of the police, uh, even though, again, it's a lower economic um, circumstance, social uh, circumstance in many of the places up north in Michigan. Uh, but I mean, they're not getting killed, you know, at the at the same degree. Um, uh, and it and that's definitely related to race. So uh, it's it's a real component to police misconduct and police interaction with the people they deal with. I think that, in my opinion, and this is what I wanted to ask you, so we have 
the racial component that is involved in these police uh, in these these cases. But then there's also in the socioeconomic thing, which I think is the bigger challenge, because let's face it, they're not going to drag, you know, Jay-Z and Beyonce <laughs> off to jail or pull them over and do something crazy. But I think it's the economic uh, the economic separation and disparities that are really at fault here and this is something that i always speak about because you know i grew up part of my life in the foster care system which was horrific and i was a good looking white kid i can't imagine someone who is of color in that system and i think that what's very unique in this country it's very specific to this country in a lot of ways with the way that we have corporations controlling the interests of incarcerations in this country and for profit incarcerations, for example, um, that it, it puts a it puts a price on the public's head. Would you agree with that? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, this was uh, a, a conservative uh, inspired uh, notion to privatize, uh, you know, uh, uh, prisons, and uh, it has become. Uh, uh, an, an industry for all intents and purposes and money um, uh, has been the rule of the day uh, in, in that regard. So absolutely. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, us both having come from the West and you still obviously living there, uh, it's very prevalent in states like Ohio, uh, how much control these corporations have. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a there was a document that was done a few years ago called 13th. Um, which was fascinating about the incarceration rates in this country and the for-profit prison systems and judges having mandates, for example, to, to put a certain amount of people away. And I guess those quotas essentially will trickle down into uh, state and local agencies and, and obviously local police departments where they have this quota to lock up a certain percentage of people for crimes or... Um, I do know that in California, a lot of this happens targeted with like people that get DUIs and like the Latino community where they will know that this person is a multiple offender. I was discussing this the other day with someone where a person is, let's say they, they have children, right? And they have a DUI and then the police who have pulled them over know them in their local community and then will go and see that person leaving a bar and it's an easy target, right? We already know we've caught this person for a DUI. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a ground ball. They're going to get their bonus. And now we get to call child protective services that rush in and then take the kids. Right. And then it just becomes this sort of this spiraling thing, which I find very interesting because for me, the, the, the incarceration rates and the, and the, the way that the system keeps a hold of you in this country is, is so unique, I believe to us here. And, and obviously because of the economic disparity, it does fall on minorities. So when you were witnessing all these things going on, is that sort of those, the, those factors, did they really, is that what drove you to, to then say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to cross the, the, you know, the blue line and go come to the public aid, public's aid against these types of things. So we've also seen, you know, you're in Detroit, but I think we all know how the, the corruption behind the city of Flint has been right with the water crisis and things like that and the police department. And, um, uh, but why don't you, I'm, I'm talking too much. Why don't you explain, explain how you really came into it? Well, uh, it, it's, it's interesting because, uh, I'm the guy that always wanted to be a lawyer. Right. Um, and, and actually, uh, the only reason I became a police officer was because back then, the government paid for college. <laughs> so um, it was a stepping stone. So it was join the military or join the police department and you chose the police department. Yeah, I chose police department. Um, you know, and it, it, it was an experience that uh, I uh, uh, don't, do not regret uh, because it was an opportunity to see people, you know, from uh, an entire spectrum of you know, good to bad, you know, to, uh, and everything in between. So I learned a lot. Um, as a police officer, the interesting thing is that there's a, 
a regiment of training that sort of uh, shapes uh, uh, the way in which you perceive uh, life and the way in which you perceive people. Uh, training is designed to be, um, to take discretion out of the picture, to think, to take thinking out of the picture it becomes uh, necessarily rote in order to, uh, to, 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 you know, follow the rules, so to speak. And the rules aren't the rules necessarily, you know, that are rules on the books, but they're the rules of survival, you know, and, and that's, uh, uh, that uh, is where the problem largely comes in. So um, as a police officer, you know, being shaped in that regard, I saw things that uh, um, were bad, but you know they had sort of like the blue protection to them. You know, sure. if you understand what I'm saying. Sure, absolutely. Once outside of that, you know, then yeah, I, I saw things much different. But I think you know, and, and again, I've not served in law enforcement, but I think that you see, I mean, you see this on like the, the crime shows, right? The CSIs of the world and whatever, NYPD blue and where you have these cops that, um, or police officers that come into a situation and they know they've got the bad guy, but they're just missing that one little piece to like get that search warrant or, or get, get, be able to arrest them. And they know this and they sort of bend the rules. So, would you, I mean, I, I would say to me, it feels like police have a certain liberty to do things that do are in the public's interest because they are able to take someone off the street by bending the rules a little bit. That is a legit criminal. Let's say they're a, you know, a child molester or, or, you know, a serial rapist or things of that nature, right? They're able to use the law to their advantage. And then you have the others that on the flip side use it to their advantage to carry out either their own agendas or agendas that are forced upon them by the powers that be. Would you agree with that? Uh, absolutely. You know, one of the early experiences as a young police officer um, was um, if you chased a stolen car and there was a driver and there was a passenger uh, oftentimes, um, they member the, the, the guys in the car, you know, they will bail out, you know, and the car keeps careening. So <laughs> you can't exactly run after them right away. But, uh, there were two different charges, a more serious charge for the driver. If you caught the driver than there was for the passenger. Sure. So it, it was customary almost um to if you caught any of them or one of them you would charge them as though they were the driver so you had to lie because you, you really couldn't identify <laughs> who was driving and who was the passenger but you go sure. to court and you lie about it because for some reason you want that person that you caught to be punished you know with the with the stronger crime so i mean and that's on the low end of it i mean i've represented you know, people that have been wrongfully convicted and spent 17, 18 years in prison for crimes yeah. that they haven't did not do. So, yeah, I mean, and, and, and believe me, it happens way, way, way more often than uh, you know, we might want to think. I mean, sure. clients right now. So. And and you would say that that also transcends race, gender. Correct. Yes. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. So ultimately, the question of police reform goes beyond that, goes beyond just targeting people of color. It, it goes or, or, or people of a certain socioeconomic status, and it, it gets a little more broad than that. Would you think? It, it does. You know, and, and again, let me give some context to this thing. Sure. Um, police mentality uh, is... Uh, is something that any person, no matter the age, the race, or, or sex, uh, can be a victim of. I have represented 
uh, 85-year-old white women from, you know, Gross Point, again, which is one of the richest communities in the country, um, for uh, police misconduct. So, you know, it just, anybody can be the victim of police misconduct because, again, there's, there's just a regimen of thought uh, of the subculture that brings the worst out in police officers because of how we as a society perceive police officers and how police officers feed on that, you know, and it empowers them to uh, essentially bend the rules uh, because, you know, they can get away with it in the courts, you know, and the legal decisions have a tendency to protect officers. You hear it a lot about qualified immunity. It's a major thing. And that has uh, led to uh, uh, the protection of a lot of misconduct that gets swept under the rug by, the, by virtue of the courts. The book is called You See a Hero, I See a Human Being. We are speaking with David Robinson Esquire, who is kind enough to give us his thoughts on the current state of the policing, the police system in the United States and directly correlating to his experience 33 plus years with the uh, dealing with the Metropolitan Police Department of the city of Detroit, both as an officer and then as a litigator for the department and then transferring to the civil side, representing those affected by decisions made by the within the department. Um, David, what um, what do you think the answer is? Hmm. I mean, that's a loaded uh, question. And we, it, it is. It is. <laughs> that's a loaded, loaded question. But to me, we got to find a sort of a common ground. We got to find it quick. I'll give you an example. I live in Santa Monica and we not only have a, a thriving homeless population due to obviously the socioeconomic disparities in the discrepancies in the city, but also because of the pandemic. And we have law enforcement, which is stretched thin as it is, but then budgets being restrained with this whole defund the police movement and things that, uh, you know, our, our mayor currently here in Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti, has passed in that sort of wake of that movement, which is unfortunate. And uh, but now we have crimes against, you know, civilians going up, you know, across the country. You know, I, recently one of the, the, the sheriff's department here in Los Angeles announced that they're going to start speed ramping up uh, or speeding up the process for people to apply for a, a concealed carry weapon with members of the public, which is like an almost impossibility in the state of California. And now they're saying, well, you know, because they can't keep up and because crime, violent crime has risen so much, um, it seems almost like you call the police and they just, they don't show up because they're, they're burdened or they can't or they're defunded or whatever that is. So, I mean, again, the answers and, and ultimately i feel this this really affects like minority communities the most because like i said before the rich people in beverly hills will be able to afford their own private security right <laughs> you exactly. know it's it's not serving you were going to say something brenda no exactly and it's really interesting that we're seeing these large lines out in front of the gun stores and <laughs> everything that's going on during the pandemic and and I know that with the issues with the police department and with the George Floyd situation and the defunding of the police and the riots and you know the marches and all of that, and everyone thinking it's a good idea to defund the police or to try to change where the resources are going, with taking away police numbers and protection, I think we're actually hurting the most vulnerable people rather than helping. And just like you said, those that are affluent can afford their own private security details, but the little old lady living in, you know, the projects cannot and needs, you know, the production more than ever with things becoming so violent and the crime escalating. And that's scary too. So how can we how can we come up with you know something that's going to be a win-win situation to help the elderly to help those who need it the most yeah you know it, it's kind of like and I, I try to illustrate this in the book um the way in which uh, uh this problem has been addressed 
you know, by, you know, legislators and, uh, you know, let's say even police departments is to, um, I analogize it to, to uh, treating the, uh, the, the uh, symptom, but not the disease. You know, uh, a reform such as, okay, no more chokeholds uh, is treating the symptom, but not the disease. The disease, you know, we saw uh, in the example of George Floyd and Derek Chauvin. When you look at Derek Chauvin, you think about Derek Chauvin literally was looking into the camera <laughs> as he, uh, you know, had his knee affixed on uh, uh, George Floyd's neck. And yeah, I think we can all agree that he, he was like a psychopath. Yeah, he thought he was untouchable. Okay. Right. Okay. So so then again, uh, the disease, it was what was going on in the mind of that police officer that would make him do that. And to date, I've not heard anybody talk about, you know, um, really analyzing that because uh, to other extents, you have the same thing going on in the mind of every police officer who finds themselves um, brutalizing, you know, another citizen. Again, I, 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 I illustrate examples, real life examples of the cases that I have dealt with um, of cases and, and that the same, you know, behavior, this same depravity of, uh, of uh, one human being in relationship to another, you know, is consistent. But, um, you know, when a police officer comes in, even when he's hired in a hiring process, there are uh, uh, psychological evaluations, right? That's the only time a police officer gets it. Um, you know, it seems to me that a guy like Derek Chauvin should have had psychological evaluations five times a year, <laughs> you know, yeah. and had he have had that type of thing, then that would address this disease that is going on, uh, in, in these, in these circumstances. So, um, uh, again, I, I don't think society has a, 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 a true real approach to changing this situation as long as they're only uh, addressing chokeholds, stop chokeholds. Cops, you know, you can tell a cop to stop a chokehold, I guarantee he's going to find another way to kill you. Right. You sure, know? sure. Well, and Derek Chauvin, didn't he have multiple complaints against him? I think that exactly. came, yeah. So why, yeah. why just now that he's, you know, murdered somebody, are we like looking at his history? Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, and then there's the argument too, that, you know, um, George Floyd wasn't exactly a model citizen either and that he had drugs in his system, like fentanyl and, and all this. So there's a lot of people that are using that. Well, he didn't care in this, and that, and somebody explained it to me really well about a month ago, they said, it's not that he did the action that Chauvin did the action of putting, you know, putting his knee on him. It's that he did it for such a long period of time and that, and they were explaining, you can correct me if I'm wrong because you're an attorney and I'm not, but there's, I guess with every minute, the charge gets greater and greater and greater where it goes from manslaughter. If he had died to like murder or what was he, would he ultimately get convicted for uh, second degree murder? Yeah. Second degree murder. And I think the egregious thing is that, why are you kneeling on this man's neck for what nine minutes and 33 seconds or something like this and yeah. you know it, it, it's a, and it's the it's it's also you know i think it's the it doesn't i don't i'm sure that obviously there is a racial component to it for sure but i also think that it's a power trip and again when you're dressing the psychological is that maybe to treat the disease rather than just the symptoms is stepping up psychiatric evaluations on these officers yeah. because let's just face it you know one of the top occupations for someone that we have you know a number of unemployed veterans that come back into this country we just shut down another war as of a week ago and we they jump into law enforcement now what have these guys been doing for the last 20 years in afghanistan 
taking mortar fire, dealing with PTSD issues. They got all, they come back with all kinds of issues. And we, you know, as a society, we have tended to turn our backs on our veterans, but then we throw them into law enforcement where they're not in as a higher, as high of a pressure situation. I'm not saying that that law enforcement isn't a high pressure occupation because it is, but not like when you're taking mortar fire for 24 hours in, you know, Kandahar, you know, um, I think that the PTSD also extends and then they, they, they definitely become way too over, they, they overstretch their boundaries, I should say. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I talk about power versus authority in the book. You know, it's, it's like the state uh, and for a police officers granted authority, you know, to exercise the law and, you know, make uh, people uh, obey traffic laws and, you know, arrest them if they have probable cause to make an arrest. But that's limited. It's limited by, you know, the Bill of Rights because, and it's limited by this word called reasonable. So the Fourth Amendment says that you can exert force, okay, but the force has to be reasonable. The force that was exerted against uh, Derek Chauvin uh, clearly exceeded you mean, you mean George Floyd George Floyd I'm saying, yeah George Floyd yeah uh, exceeded uh, you know what was reasonable because uh, you think about it uh, in the intent of the fourth amendment and the limitation of reasonable means that no one under a circumstance such as that should die <laughs> sure. you know um and so where police officers get confused, they misconstrue uh, power for authority. They don't have power. The state can't give a police officer power. He can only give the police officer authority. Power is unlimited. You know, it is without restraint. And that's exactly what it is that we saw with Derek Chauvin. Yeah. You know, yep. it was unrestrained power. He didn't have power. So, you know. And I would say that for, for myself, when that happened, I was angry and I was, I, I was, I mean, I felt sorry for George Floyd. I mean, I didn't really know who, who he was, but I, I, I feel sorry for anyone who's, you know, d dies unexpectedly like that. It's a very brutal act or dies in that way. But I think what I was angriest about is like, who, what gave Derek Chauvin the right to play judge and jury? And, and, and I know a lot of people, you know, um, and the trial, of course, in American politics, without question, is very polarizing. People were very polarized on this issue and saying, well, this is this. And then people were saying, well, he, you know, he got all this attention because he was African-American or whatever. Look, at the end of the day, for me, I don't care what color he is or what he is. The fact is that we have judicial, we have, we have due process in this country. And that needs to be followed because that's what makes our democracy, if that's what we still have here. Uh, so unique around the world is that our justice system, as flawed as it is, is supposed to protect the people and guilty or innocent until proven guilty. And when officers cross this line to me, it's like, what gave you the right to just decide that? Put him in front of a jury of his peers, put him before a judge at least and let them be because you, you've overstepped your boundaries. I think that's what makes me the angriest. And I think a lot of people lose sight in that because we, we polarize it. Black Lives Matter gets involved. Right wing causes get involved and everybody starts arguing about these different things. When really the core root is you're taking away somebody and you, you, you're taking away the people's rights. You're taking away the rights of, 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 of George Floyd to be, to be you know, tried and convicted in a court of law. And you are, are taking away his due, due, due process. And, and you're not serving the community. And somebody like Derek Chauvin did that, in my opinion. Yeah, he definitely did that. Uh, again, you know, let's, let's, let's go back to when a police officer becomes a police officer. There's an oath uh, that a police officer has to take. In that oath, again, the same thing that I'm talking about with, you know, restrictions in the, the Bill of Rights uh, is, is contained within uh, that oath uh, and and the uh, code of ethics that a police officer takes clearly it's going to be um, replete with what a cop can't do <laughs> versus what he can do in the manual itself you don't have the word power 
it's only going you're going to see in any police department manual in any city of the or or state in this country the word reasonable you'll never see the word power in there but over and over and over again police departments you know ignore um the uh restrictions or the limitations uh that the state uh and the government puts on police officers in the exercise of that authority this is really important um and 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 i i'm not hearing anybody talking about that i'm not hearing anybody talking about that analysis i'm not hearing anybody talking about what was going through derek chauvin's mind as he had his damn knee and george floyd's neck for that long what was going through his mind what was he thinking about you know was he going to get back to the station and get high fives or something and hey attaboys because he caught the big one was that what was going or was he as depraved enough to say that I really want to kill this dude? You know, only uh, Derek Chauvin knows the truth there, but nobody is talking about it. Nobody's trying to analyze it to see what and, and how regularly this happens. It's the same thing with Michael Brown and, and uh, I forget the police officer's name that shot Michael Brown and, and, and the Walter Scott situation. You analyze every one of those situations, it's going to be the same thing. And nobody's talking about that. Nobody wants to examine what is going through the brains of these police officers as they exceed what is reasonable for us, exceed what they have trained to do, exceed what it, the oath it is that they took when they first came became police officers. Right. And then add on Tamir Rice as a mom, you know, that one was so heartbreaking to me because I don't care, you know, what color you are or what socioeconomic background you come from, you know, um, as a mom, that was so heartbreaking to think that kids were playing with toy guns and to have a police officer pull up and shoot this kid. What was it like seven times for playing with a toy gun? I don't care if he thought it was a real gun. That was a kid. And, you know, not to, to try to stop the situation before firing that to me was just overwhelming. And then the comments that cops made to the mother, like shaming her, like this was her fault. Right. Oh, oh no, just no, that just infuriated me to no end and how that mom kept her stuff together. I would have lost it. So, you know, good on her because she did keep it together much more so than I ever could have. And God bless her. And I just hope, you know, I know she's out there trying to do some good things um, with what happened to her son. And I, I hope that she succeeds because that to me was unforgivable. Yeah, and it was a death that was unnecessary and never should have occurred. I mean, um, again, they it, the police officers rushed into the situation uh, when they had so much of an opportunity to approach it differently, and it would have had a different result. The same thing was with Eric Garner. When you think about it, um, Eric Garner was selling cigarettes in front of a store. His enterprise, Eric Garner's enterprise to make money was to sell cigarettes, okay, inside, a, out in front of a store. Okay, so the store owner says, okay, well, you shouldn't do that, so he calls the police. The police come and they turn what is a simple situation into a deadly situation by killing um, Eric Garden. It could have approached it totally different, such that if Eric Gardner, just think about this for a second, if Eric Gardner is, is selling cigarettes, trying to make some money, uh, out in front of the store, um, Eric Garner has to rely on customers who want cigarettes <laughs> that would approach him to get one cigarette and, instead of paying $25 for a pack of cigarettes, you know, because all, all they need is one smoke, so they paid a dollar for, for one cigarette. So you shut Eric Garner's enterprise down by just parking the police car in front of Eric Garner so that the people he's selling to see the police out there, they're going to be uh, uh, disencouraged to commit the crime of buying a cigarette from Eric Garner. So that shuts in and, and tell Eric Garner, I mean, it's like these simple, these situations are 
in, in, in large part as simple as how it is the police can approach these situations differently. Um, but again, nobody's talking about, you know, right. uh, um, how it is that the police should have done something differently. They always talk about how Eric Garner should have done something differently or how Tamara Rice should have done something differently to have avoided the right. situation. Well, so, and you would think no. like if they would have just, you know what, let's grab some lunch and sit here and eat it in the car in front of this guy's stand and problem solved and you don't have yeah. to yeah have any violence over it and you know and you get a nice lunch break at the same time it's a win-win but no they had to make it into a bigger deal it's like simple yeah. common sense and almost a little bit comical at the same time they could have avoided this whole thing right, right. but do exactly. they do they avoid would you say david do they avoid do they avoid making these situations simpler and just and like you said just parking the car out in front of him and then that's it because their superiors or they're getting pressure from the community to do more to be more act proactive against this why did not you go after him would they, would they say hey you know hey uh captain I did, we just parked the car in front of there in front of the quickie mart for 45 minutes and he left well why didn't you arrest him would they get more pressure or why didn't you confront him or i mean is that how it goes as well or again it, it goes back to the things that i'm talking about authority versus you know power and it caps uh, the pantaleo you know he clearly wasn't a power trip you know because he wasn't going to have it on his watch sure. which resulted in and again pantaleo now ignoring the fact that new york as i say got rid of chokeholds and like i said if the police department says don't chokehold i'll find another way to kill you Sure. That's exactly what happened with Eric Garner. And, and 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 we know what I'm saying is right because no one's been called on the carpet about uh, Eric Garner's death. They put all the blame on Eric Garner. Eric Garner's the guy that they say started this. And so um, we don't have to second guess what Pantaleo did or we don't have to second guess uh, ourselves in terms of the approach that we might take uh, before we engage uh, that situation to avoid the ultimate, you know, negative outcome. You know, nobody's talking about that. Yeah. Okay. So we've gone kind of down a dark road, <laughs> um, but what is, what's the positive? What's the light at the end of the tunnel? Because we have to just have to solve this problem, this country. It's not going to go away. And obviously the answer is not, you know, uh, uh, let's continue these aggressive policing efforts. The answer is not let's, you know, go loot downtown Santa Monica because we're angry and commit more crimes. Right. Let's not take over a whole district in Seattle because we don't want police here uh, and create anarchy. Um, what is what is the what do you feel is going to be the proper way for communities to really uh, address these issues in a timely <laughs> matter that people are going to feel satisfied? That, Look, we are making progress. Because we need our police, right. we do. We need law enforcement in this country. It is a right. mark of we, a civilized we need society. Our police, absolutely, but we need our police to do what police are supposed to do, and sure. not overdo what police are supposed to do. So, how does that? How how do you how do you arrange that? Um, I think you shift the paradigm. Um, at, at this point in time, again, this notion of qualified immunity, which is a, a judge created thing, okay. It's not something that was created by Congress. It is a judge-created thing that gives uh, the ultimate excuse to police officers that kill and maim people. You know, uh, it needs to be addressed. There was an opportunity for the Supreme Court to take it up uh, last year, and they refused to. Um, uh, but it has led to, you know, a multitude of wrongful deaths. Uh, judge-created judge language that police officers, it trickles down to police officers that put in their reports in order to justify their misbehavior. Like they've had uh, sure. uh, a split second to make a decision. You know, I, in, in Eric Garner's case, Penaleo would say he had a split second. Well, if you got a damn split second, that ought to be the longest section second in your life. And you ought to think about your seconds again, before you even approach a situation. These outcomes are well within the control of police officers, but tra training 
uh, doesn't um, uh, address that. Uh, training is, is sort of a us against them mentality. So I don't say defund the police. I say uh, channel the money uh, that you would buy for you know another uh, AR-15 into um, routine uh, evaluative psychological evaluations of police officers because there is a way to predict predict this misbehavior. Absolutely, you know things like that. I mean, and and we've got a technology today where um, uh, these um, um, uh, surveillance techniques um, are. Are, are, are so advanced with police officers, body cams and so forth. So right now the technology is up to, you know, human, you know, interference. A police officer has a body cam, but police officer has the ability to turn that body cam on and off, okay? But there is technology that would call override that sort of thing where police officers can be monitored the same way that police departments monitor citizens, you know, in, in their daily goings on, you know, and, and, and here in the city, we've got green light cameras, we've got retailers that have uh, uh, been recruited, you know, to uh, for citizen surveillance so that the police can police the citizens. Well, the police should be policing the police because they've got the technology to do it, do so. Override uh, the ability of the police officers to manipulate those cameras so that all of their behavior, you know, is uh, out front and open. And once that happens, if a police officer is trained then to believe that the eye is watching him also, then maybe some of this stuff can, uh, can stop, okay? So there is a solution. And, you know, uh, for me, like, when I'm discussing these issues, especially with the show what i try to get into people's minds is this can happen to you if they have if the police have unchecked power what happens when it turns on you mm-hmm. <laughs> you yeah. know it can happen yeah. to anybody it's yep. just it's just happening to unfortunately minorities at this moment in time but a police state is a police state yeah no matter yeah. what yeah. and it doesn't uh, matter <laughs> let me mention one thing Collier. sure again I have police officers who are the victims of police misconduct that come to me. I mean, that's how crazy this thing is, okay? Mm-hmm. That's how unchecked this power is. There is a solution, but nobody really, I think, wants to uh, to deal with it because they, and there, there's, there's this mystique of police, okay? And nobody, because they have a dangerous job, wants to second guess what it is that they do. And it is dangerous, but it ain't dangerous like it is on TV, you know, for a series like, uh, you know, 24, which I loved with Jack Bauer, right? Mm-hmm. He would have been the tiredest man in America <laughs> you know, <laughs> if he was doing that every day. Well, cops, you know, excitement happens, but not, you know, it's, it's every now and then. It's not like constant, so... I personally feel that our rights have been so obscured in this country with all of the nonsense that's, that's going on, the back and forth between the political parties and then the news networks and everything. Everything has become so convoluted that some people don't know what their rights are. Let's just be honest. That's what the powers that be, that be want. They want us to be divided. They don't want us to sit and compare notes. They don't want the, they don't want the white guy to go to the black guy and be like, oh, yeah, that same shit happened to me. Or, oh. This happened, um, this happened over, uh, you know, th- this happened to my girlfriend. It, 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 they, don't, they don't want us to compare notes. The more divisive they can keep us, the better, the, the better that they'll have their control over their power and authority right. in the big right. picture. Right. And the less empowered they're going to allow us. And that's what's really got to change, in my opinion. And the sad thing is, is that there are a lot of really good cops out there that do want to do the right thing and that are doing the job for the right reasons. And it sucks that, you know, they're getting painted with this, you know, sure. same, the same brush that these jackasses are, you know, making us paint them with. And it's, it isn't fair. No. 
and it makes their lives less safe because of people like, you know, being frustrated and like over this, that they're, you know, fighting back and then they're caught in the line of fire. So it's just, it's sad. And there's a story in your book that, you know, I keep thinking back to that. I absolutely loved when you were a, a rookie and you went into that house with the kid that was autistic, that was, you know, having a really bad day. And instead of, you know, trying to be forceful, you got down on his level and, and talked to him to where he was like, Oh, hi. Like, like he just acknowledged that you were there because you were getting down on his level and treating him like he was human. And, you know, the other guy that was with you didn't know what to do and wanted just to be forceful. And you were the one that turned the situation around. And again, as I say, it's, it's always in the approach. Um, uh, and I saw my partner's approach, which didn't work. Right. So I stepped back and I had to think about it because I, you know, it was like, okay, I had this guy's mom, you know, I had to do something to protect her. Right. Uh, and I had to do my job. My sworn duty was, you know, to figure out how to get this guy out of the house without me getting killed, you know, and beaten up. And, and you know, that's not something they taught in the academy. And the, the approach that they taught in the academy was what my partner did. And right. again, I mean, and so I thought uh, they don't teach cops to think, frankly. I mean, the training regimen is, is again, just to react not to think, you know, train like German shepherds. Yep. And there's so much mental illness and there's so many kids that are on the spectrum now. And it's a completely different ball game than it was back in the seventies and eighties. We just didn't have this level of mental illness that we have now. So the training has to be completely different. Right. Yeah. And it has only gotten worse training wise. Yeah. And that's, that's sad. It is really sad. There is a solution. And, you know, we, I don't think this is going to happen overnight. So uh, I'm I'm sure we're going to be discussing this again. And we'd love to have you back on the program. The book is called You See a Hero, I See a Human Being by David Robinson Esquire, who we have had the privilege of speaking with. The uh, book is actually being uh, revised for television, a a series called The Blue Code, which you should be looking out for. David, it's been a pleasure having you on the program Moving Past Murder, and we really thank you for your time. We'd love to have you back and discuss these issues, and thank you for all the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Kyle. I really appreciate the invitation. I'd love to come back. Uh, sounds great. I'm Collier Landry. And I'm Brenda Fisher. And this is Moving Past Murder. Thanks, y'all. For more information, please visit movingpastmurder.com or mpmpodcast.com. The film A Murder in Mansia is available on Investigation Discovery, Hulu, and Amazon Prime Video. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio in association with RSA Entertainment.